Well, good morning, everybody. Am I on? Thanks, Matt. That's great. Well, today we're looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Thank you, Yvonne. Page 851, if you want to flip back to it, page 851. And the parable has a specific context because there were some among the crowd who were confident of their own righteousness. Literally, this parable was given to, quote, those who believed in themselves that they are righteous, unquote. And this word uh, righteous or righteousness, it has two connotations simultaneously. It means two things at the same time. Firstly, on the one hand, to be righteous is to be right with God, to be his friend, a person belonging to God. And on the other hand, biblically, to be righteous also means to live rightly with respect to others, uh, to be a godly person. This parable then is aimed at people who were confident that they belonged to God because their behavior was right. Their self-confidence then rested on something that is easy to recognize uh, theologically and is uh, called theologically works righteousness. Um, What I've done is right, therefore I am and will be righteous. Declared righteous in. And uh, just to state the obvious, works righteousness is ever-present in every human society and culture amongst people of every conceivable faith, ideology, or philosophical persuasion. The works righteous person is, by definition, a self-righteous person because they themselves declare themselves to be righteous. Now, with respect to the authors of the New Testament, they understood that works righteousness was a particularly Jewish problem. I mean, after all, they had a heck of a lot to be proud of, didn't they? I mean, if anyone could be proud, it was the Jews. They had Moses and the laws of Moses uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments, uh, a legal of ethics and behavior infinitely superior to anything, anything any other nation possessed in the ancient world. They, they had the patriarchs, a heritage of faith and righteousness. They had the prophets and wisdom literature, a priceless inheritance of ethical and moral teaching. They had the oral tradition, centuries of critical and intellectual debate between the leading rabbis, leading to a near-watertight way of life according to Jewish tradition and the rules of Scripture. And so, we have the archetypal, the stereotypical, we have the stereotypical Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, pious and devout, Bible-believing, someone who could and did and would say things like, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a descendant of Levi, I have kept the commandments since I was a boy, I am zealous for the law and for the traditions. I am a guide to the blind, a light for those in darkness, a teacher of students, an instructor to the young and foolish. I am a wise man. None of these things uh, were or are uh, in and of themselves um, wrong. Indeed, uh, such a person... Uh, Really, if those things are true, such a person is is much to be praised. Um, The difficulty 
is that typically for such a person, their hope of future salvation rested not on the grace and mercy of God, but on their own moral track record. Now, uh, works righteousness is always, always accompanied by contempt or hatred of others. Uh, We notice, don't we, right at the start, that Jesus links as two inseparable things, these things. Confidence in one's own righteousness comes together with looking down on everyone else or despising others or treating them with contempt, however you want to render it. Now, why can't these two things be separated? Well, actually, it's, you can explain it theologically. You can explain it psychologically. I won't attempt today because it would take too long. We just need to note it and see it and understand it that self-righteous people always treat others who are not like them with contempt. Self-righteousness and treating others with contempt go hand in hand and cannot be separated. And, and so, so the other person in Christ's parable, the other stereotypical figure, the, the arch-villain of the Gospels is the tax collector. And just in case you're unfamiliar with who these people are, the tax collectors in Jesus' days were franchisees who collected taxes for the Romans. They were collaborators, therefore, with the occupying enemy. That They were also corrupt. The Romans didn't supervise them closely, so tax collectors were able to grow extremely rich by way of cheating the system. And, and in the context of a poor nation, on a Cold War footing, regularly impoverished, where people did, did starve to death, these guys were financial predators, swindlers, Standover merchants, extortionists, protection racketeers. When Jesus spoke this parable, there would be some in the congregation, perhaps most in the congregation, in his audience, who were experiencing the suffering of real hardship because of these guys. Tax collectors were not nice people. They were the ones that everyone hated and loved to hate. It was okay to hate tax collectors because they were, of course, such evil people. And just to point out the obvious, they hung out with Gentiles, the Romans, so they didn't keep the law of Moses. So then, two men go up to the temple to pray. Sometimes we miss the fact that these men are in the temple. They're not at home. They're not by themselves. In other words, the context here is not one of private devotions but rather the context is public worship. Going somewhere to pray in the Bible can mean either going somewhere by yourself to pray or it can mean going to a worship service. So you might have said, oh, I'm going this morning to St. Barnabas to pray. And in biblical times, they knew that you meant this. So our context is clear. The idea of going to the temple to pray means that they are uh, participants in public worship. 
And when would that have been? Well, that would have been at 9 o'clock in the morning or at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the liturgy would have had many different elements. But Jesus takes us quickly right through to prayer time. And at this point, the lamb has already been sacrificed as a sin offering for the people on the altar in the presence of the congregation who are standing in the court of Israel. The lamb has been cut up and is being burnt on the altar. The priest at this point departs. He goes into the holy place, also called the sanctuary, in front of a third space. He won't enter the third space. That's the holy of holies. That's for just one day of the year. But in the sanctuary, he's going to offer incense. And while that takes place, at that point in the service, there'd be what we would call a corporate extemporaneous prayer. In other words, at that point, everybody gets to say their own prayers. Uh, people making their own petitions and intercessions, perhaps quietly and, or silently, perhaps loudly and noisily. Everybody praying out loud or silently. Well, both men are described in two ways. Firstly, what is their manner? Where were they standing and what is their posture? Secondly, what did they pray? What is the content of their prayer? The Pharisee is described first. He stands by himself. And uh, Jesus' hearers would have been painfully familiar with this tendency of their religious establishment to stand aloof from the congregation at worship. Why? Well, their fear, fear of the Pharisees, was that the great hoi polloi, the, the, the people of the earth, the great unwashed, those who are ignorant of the law and the traditions, they would render them ritually unclean. So you stood aloof to demonstrate your spiritual superiority. I think I'll just stand over here. I need to wash my hands. I've been touching parishioners. And again, Jesus' hearers would have been painfully familiar with the prayers of the religious elite of Israel. Jesus describes them for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, when he says to his disciples, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, in order to be seen by others. And, and then we get to the content of his prayer. And it quickly becomes apparent his prayer is not a prayer at all, is it? Um, he's taking the opportunity of a corporate prayer time to preach a sermon. Not sure if you've ever heard that before. I sure have. Maybe you heard it from me. My apologies. I know I've done that. I know I've heard that. You hear somebody praying, and actually that's not a prayer. It's a sermon. Thank you so much. That's what he's doing here. It's a sermon. He's taking the opportunity of corporate prayer time to preach a sermon to put others right, to instruct the great unwashed and to give them the benefit of his knowledge. And he uses himself as an example of what it means to be righteous. And he is very happy to take the tax collector as a negative example of what not to do. Clearly, the tax collector is indeed there too in the congregation But one clear purpose of this sermon is to tell the tax collector that he doesn't belong there. According to strict observance of the law of Moses, this tax collector, as an unclean man, he should not be in the court of Israel. But he should be at the gate, looking in, standing in the court of the Gentiles. This sermon is designed to embarrass somebody into leaving. And the tax collector, well, actually... He is a liar and he's a cheater. 
He has cheated on his neighbors. He cheats on his boss. He cheats on his nation. He's cheated on his God. And who knows, but we may as well throw it in just for good measure. He probably cheats on his wife as well. We are safe in assuming that the tax collector does not fast, and we're safe in assuming he doesn't tithe. And it would have been the Pharisees' assumption and the assumption of the other members of the congregation and the assumption of Christ's audience as they listened to this parable that would have been their assumption that this tax collector is essentially unforgivable. I mean, even if he renounced all greed and corruption, the law requires him to make reparation. He needs to repay everything that he's stolen, adding to it a 20% 20 of of the value, one fifth of the value. And we can safely assume he would not have been able to do that. So therefore, he is a hopeless case. But but now we come to his prayer. He also stands apart from the congregation, far off. Uh, It is clear, however, that this is not a gesture of assumed superiority, but of humility. He does not feel worthy to join the others. Perhaps he doesn't want to make them unclean. Uh, he, he beats his breast. He beats his chest. This is a gesture of extreme remorse. Um, it is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, both times in Luke's Gospel, and the other occasion it's mentioned is chapter 23, verse 48, where it is a response to the crucifixion of Christ. Um, the meaning of the gesture is supplied by an ancient Jewish commentary, and the meaning of the gesture is this, to pound on the chest with arms crossed, and hands as fists, is to punish the heart from which all evil thoughts and longings come. Now to his prayer. The NIV uh, gets it right when it translates it as, um, I didn't mean that to sound arrogant, of course it gets it right. Uh, The NIV, it's it's a good translation. Um, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, But there are two small translational details worth looking at. Firstly, the tax collector does not use the usual word for mercy. Um, Skip down with me, if you'd like, down to verse 38 in the same chapter, and you'll see a blind man cry out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the verb that the blind man uses is eleison, which is the usual verb for mercy. Have mercy on me. The tax collector uses a different verb. Literally, uh, well, in Greek, it's um, hilastate me. Please hilastate me. Um, This same word, turned into a noun, was actually used in our Romans reading uh, this morning. God presented Jesus as a hilasterian or as a sacrifice of atonement. Yes, The tax collector is saying, God, have mercy on me, but he's using liturgical language. He's using the language of sacrifice. Literally, he's saying, God, please be appeased with respect to me. God, be appeased. Stop being angry. Please stop being angry with me. God, be appeased with respect to me. Please turn aside from your righteous anger with respect to me. The second detail um, is just that the prayer includes the definite article, the word the. He prays, God, be appeased with respect to me, the sinner. 
And that's not a big deal. Um, the Greek language uses the definite article differently to English. Like, for example, I mean, you'd call me the Stephen in Greek. Oh, the Stephen is, uh, has entered the room. And let me introduce you to my wife, the Joanna. The Joanna. The Joanne. <laughs> I'm having a great day. Um, but it's there. The, the, the definite article. Um, so uh, when we know those two little details, we can see that this, his prayer is actually, it's an obvious reference to the lamb who was slain, uh, the carcass of the lamb that was slaughtered, cut up, offered to God as a sacrifice on the altar, just meters away from where the tax collector is standing. God, be appeased with respect to me, the sinner for whom the lamb died. That's what Jesus' hearers would have heard, but we don't always get it. And this means that we can flesh out this prayer even more. Because firstly, we know that he is depending 100% upon the grace of God. He knows that he deserves condemnation. And he can bring nothing to the table. He is casting his hope totally on God's character, trusting that God will indeed be gracious and merciful and forgiving. The second thing we we now see about his prayer is that he's depending upon God's character as revealed in what God has already done for him. He trusts God's word. He takes God's word seriously that the provision of a sacrifice in the temple is effective because God says it's going to be effective. And on the basis of the blood of the lamb, he can be forgiven. He trusts in what God has done for him and that only. And so to the conclusion of the parable, it was the tax collector and not the Pharisee who went home justified before God. That, that phrase, justified before God, um, correctly translates a phrase that, that is uh, literally in Greek just a single word. And the single word means having been pronounced righteous. He was pronounced righteous. Who by? By God. The Pharisee went home not justified. Unrighteous. And to put this in the context of temple worship, the lamb did not work for the Pharisee. He went home unforgiven. God said, no, I'm not applying to him the benefit of the lamb. As far as I'm concerned, with respect to that Pharisee, that lamb died meaninglessly. And I'm really angry about that. In fact, now I'm even more angry than I was before. On the other hand, the tax collector did go home justified. God's friend, righteous, forgiven, without blame or accusation in the presence of God. God is not angry with him. Um, We we can now appreciate um, how, how shocking both of those declarations would have been to Christ's original audience. The condemnation of a Pharisee and the justification of a tax collector Both actions shatter their preconceptions of justification and righteousness. This paragon of virtue and and righteousness, he goes home condemned. This unforgivable monster, forgiven and God's friend. How does that work? Well, Jesus concludes the parable with a proverb that acts as a summary. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um, this proverb, uh, which appears in a variety of contexts in the New Testament, may well have had a life of its own before Jesus recruited it into his service. Uh, it may well have functioned as a moral proverb. And it well, works well as a moral proverb, doesn't it? I mean, it's true that life will humble the proud and the arrogant eventually. And it is true that a little humility goes a long way in life. But that is not what it's doing here. This parable is not a moral parable in, in this context, but theological. Jesus is teaching that those who exalt themselves in God's presence will be humbled by God. In the presence of God, no one can boast. But those who humble themselves in God's presence will be exalted by God. A humble and contrite heart is the acceptable sacrifice, the acceptable attitude. Well, what, what, makes, what makes for righteousness on the one hand versus self-righteousness on the other? After all, as human beings, we actually find it really hard to tell the difference. Um, the beauty of this parable is this parable gives us a God's eye view on the difference between self-righteous and righteous. From our perspective, with God out of sight and out of mind for most of the time, what we actually do is we, we endlessly compare ourselves with each other, don't we? And when we do that, we, we, we determine that so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such is a good person. And actually, there are bad people out there, but none of us know any because we live in little huddles of polite society where we're all good people. And such judgments in this world are not entirely meaningless. There are people in this world who are kind and generous, patient and sympathetic, who are altruistic and work to help others. I mean, let's think of some really good people. And uh, I've picked uh, as my sermon example Professor Fred Hollows, Australian of the Year at some point in the 90s, uh, just huge numbers of honors and awards, uh, an, an eye surgeon. Um, and I think in many ways uh, he is a contemporary secular saint. It is estimated that around the world today, more than one million people can see as a direct result of his good work. He is, he is in our context, in our worldly context, he is a remarkably good man. But bring God into the picture and into our presence, and we see things completely differently. There are none, there are none who are good, except God alone. Socially and legally, it would be dangerous, perhaps even offensive or scandalous, to suggest that Professor Fred Hollows was an evil man. Theologically, however, we are on safe ground when we say exactly that. And it would be offensive and scandalous to suggest otherwise. Why? Because we all sin. And in sinning, we reject God in order, to, in order to coronate ourselves in his place. We are not all equally evil, but we are all evil. Because we are all sinners, because we are all evil, we share one thing basically in common, and that is we are all completely and totally dependent upon the grace of God. We all need the grace of God equally because we all need the grace of God absolutely. We have an absolute need for the grace of God. I, I, I'm not sure about you, but well, actually, I am sure about you, but, but we don't have a 
partial need for God's grace. We have a total need for God's grace. And so in praying to himself, this Pharisee was kidding himself, believing that he is a good person. And on that basis, he'll be accepted. No, actually, he too is a sinner. But his sin has blinded him. So we can't see that he's basically in the same boat as the tax collector. He's comparing himself to others. He should compare himself to God's word in whom in whose image and likeness he is created. Then he'll see clearly, but he doesn't see clearly. He's been blinded. He's blind to his hypocrisy. He's blind to his contempt for others. He's blind to the issues of justice and mercy in his own community. And so he's blind to his own need for forgiveness. And so he hasn't asked for grace. The the tax collector, um, on the other hand, asks for forgiveness. Um, He he knows that he has trapped himself and become trapped in a corrupt and evil system that is predatory and hurts people. It makes victims, he makes victims, he himself is a victim. He can now act so as to lessen his culpability, but he cannot escape from the depraved system he finds himself in. And that is true also of the Pharisee. And that is true also of you and also of me. That's not difficult to prove. Let's just ask some basic questions. Who, Who made the clothes you're wearing? And under what conditions do they live? Who harvested the cocoa beans that went into the chocolate you eat? Um, where does our tea and coffee that we will enjoy at morning tea come from? We can act so as to lessen our culpability, but we cannot pretend to be clean. You, me, the Pharisee and the tax collector, we have no right to continuing existence except that it is by the grace of God, the mercy of God. And so that must lead us to the question, where is the lamb to which we can appeal? To what can we point and say, dear God, please be appeased with respect to me, the sinner. And of course, we all know the answer to this one. Jesus, Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died for us on a cross taking the punishment we deserve, which is death. In his name, there is forgiveness of sin. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified by God. We are God's friends. We are forgiven without blame, stain, accusation, or wrinkle in the presence of God. Maybe wrinkles, I'm not sure. God's friend. Today's parable is the third parable in a row that we've looked at that is about prayer. The difference is that, that actually this parable is not so much about prayer as it is about justification, how to be right with God. This parable should prompt us to prayerfully think about what it is exactly that we're holding on to in our lives. Because, I mean, for us as Christians... 
with respect to us, the Catholics, the Evangelicals, the Charismatics, the Pentecostals, the Liberals, we've all invented our own form of works righteousness. We've all done it. Oh, right membership, right doctrine, right behavior, right experience, right thinking. Things that we believe make us the justified ones so that we can go on enjoying despising others. Right membership, right doctrine, right behavior, right experience, right thinking, they're all wonderful things. But if we think that by such things we are justified, that we'll be able to stand in God's presence, then we make the Pharisees' error, which is, of course, catastrophic. This parable ought ought also to prompt us to think about any contempt reaction we might have with respect to others that we find in, in life. If we find ourselves despising others for not having right membership, doctrine, behavior, experience, or thinking, then that tells us that there is self-righteousness within our own hearts. Who do we allow ourselves to hate? And in doing so, thank God that we are not like them. Finally, um, I just love this parable. This parable reminds me of something miraculously wonderful. Whenever I am overwhelmed by the reality of my own sin, which happens way less often than it ought, but when it does happen, it's by the grace and mercy of God. When I am overwhelmed by the reality of my own sin, this parable reminds me to remember the gospel, to come to the cross, to fix my eyes on Jesus rather than myself. And it reminds me that I do indeed have a future hope. I I have a future hope that is totally based on the grace and kindness of God, rather than on my own moral track record. Totally on the grace and mercy of God as revealed in his provision for me, Jesus on the cross the lamb who takes away the sin of the Stephen and also of you. When I see this clearly, it is immensely comforting and reassuring. The Lord be with you.